Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There are a sh- these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the early 2000s, in a coastal town of California, there was a pastor leading a college ministry of his local church. And the ministry was growing, so the church saw the work of the Lord happening, and they sent that ministry, along with that pastor, out to plant it as a real church in the city. Now, that plant would eventually become a family of churches, and and those churches would be up and down the coast of California, and they'd be as far-reaching as Boston and Honolulu and even into London. But like any new church, they were looking for a name, and this was the early 2000s, so they were looking for a cool and catchy name. And in God's good providence, inspiration struck as they came across our passage here, particularly verse 17, where it says, Jesus is the substance. Or maybe if you have a NIV or an NLT in your lap, you'll see that it reads, Jesus is reality. If you've ever wondered where the reality family of churches got its name, you're looking at it. See, in our text today, Paul is coming against the false teaching and false Christianity infecting the Colossian church. And he's contrasting what is false against the truth of the reality of Christ. And he's going to continue hammering in on what we've been telling you is the backbone message of Colossians, that it's the same gospel that saves sinners. It's that same gospel that also sanctifies the saints. But our text today is a tricky one. I'm not going to lie. Scholars have been scratching their heads and debating the correct interpretation for years. I spent my whole week scratching my head over it. Because scholars have noted that Paul seems to be intentionally vague in our passage today. And so the debate is over what the, it's not over what the passage is saying as, as if we don't know what the words Paul used actually mean, as if we can't translate it. Instead, the debate's over what exactly Paul meant by the words that he used. Many scholars are just kind of left shrugging their shoulders for what this philosophy is that he's coming against. Because given the descriptions that Paul uses here, you can't situate it in any particular worldview or religion of the time. He seems to be addressing a whole host of issues and concerns plaguing the church in Colossae. But amidst all this uncertainty, I want us to have some confidence this morning. 
Because while we can't know exactly what Paul is against, we can have certainty concerning exactly what Paul is for. And so this is the main point today. The thing that Paul is trying to show the Colossians and us this morning is this. Reality is not a condition to be attained, but a person to be beheld. Reality is not a condition to be attained, but a person to be beheld. Reality can't be made by you because Jesus is reality. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, he's eternally begotten, not made. You can't attain reality. You can't attain the true substance because Jesus is reality. And that's the whole message of the gospel. God had to come do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. So the reality of Christ came to us because we could not make our way to him. Reality is a person, and he is a person that you do not attain. He's a person you embrace, and he's a person that you behold. At one of my previous jobs, um, I was hired into a position that managed the health education department of one of our county's local health plans. And months after I was hired, my boss pulled me into her office and told me that they had made an error. And technically, they should have hired somebody else. See, I had the correct degree for the position, but it turned out that my program was lacking a specific accreditation needed for somebody hired into my role. And so my director was basically telling me, look, I know I hired you, and I know I said that you have the correct qualifications, but... It turns out you don't. Technically, you're disqualified. And that's essentially what's happening in our text today. And while this is a debated passage, what is clear is that there were some amongst the Colossians that were attempting to determine who was or wasn't a Christian or who was or was not saved based on things that had no bearing in true faith in Christ. It's, it's not unlike today's Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or, dare I even say, Roman Catholicism. Philosophies that add to Christ what the Bible does not do and make them necessary for saving faith. They were attempting to disqualify those that Christ himself had qualified. And while it may not be a particular faith or worldview that Paul is addressing, he does list some things that, invo- that are involved in this philosophy, and they seem to fall in two primary buckets. This philosophy was first pulling shadows from the past into the present, and it was second adding supplements to the present in order to make it to the future. So look with me in verse 16. Therefore, all right, stop. Listen, that little word is doing a lot of work. At this point, we have to pause and reorient ourselves to the argument Paul is actually making in this section of Colossians. We have to ask the question that goes like this. What's the therefore, therefore? See, Paul is very logical, and much of his writing is him just making logical arguments. He's trying to persuade. He's trying to convince And because he's making logical arguments, he uses logical words to try to convince his readers not only of the truthfulness of Christianity, but also that if it is true, then there are necessary implications for how we should live. And so if you remember last week, verse 8 is really where Paul launches into this section that we're in right now, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And last week what we saw is that he flips the point around and begins by showing us what it means to believe a Christianity according to Christ. And so before we can get to the empty philosophy that he's dealing with in our text this week, we need to remember what this Christianity according to Christ actually is. We need to answer that question, what's the therefore, therefore? And so what did Paul say is a Christianity according to Christ? He said that it means to be in him. That phrase was repeated over and over and over again in our text last week. Okay, so well, what does it mean to be in him? It means that by God's grace and through faith, when God the Father looks at you, he sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Because the record of debt that stood against you, that stood against me, was set aside and nailed to the cross. It means that by faith, you've not only died with Christ, but you've also been raised with him to live a life of newness and joy and abundance. It means you've been liberated from your bondage to sin, and by the Spirit at work within you, you are now free to obey God. It means you actually desire to do the will of the Father because you've been overwhelmed by the work of the Son, and you are now living in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be in him. This is a Christianity according to Christ. Therefore, Paul continues, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so in this one section of the empty philosophy, It seems as though Paul is dealing particularly with the Old Testament law or customs and traditions stemming from ethnic Israel. And most believe that this is true because it's unlikely that Paul would call pagan practices shadows of which Christ is the true substance. See, Paul is concerned that there were Jews who have now become Christians and and they're overbinding the consciences of their fellow believers when it comes to their diets or, or maybe even celebration of certain days. And I want to point this out. This was a pervasive issue in the early church. It is all over the pages of the New Testament. Paul comes against it explicitly in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, where certain Jewish Christians were making judgments about others based upon what they ate. And Galatians 2 details for us uh, Paul's rebuke of Peter for distancing himself from the Gentiles when the Jews were around because he, Peter was worried it was going to make him look a little bit less holy. And Acts 15 records for us the first early church council where the apostles were wrestling over how much of the law of Moses needed to be kept now that we were free in Christ. How much do we need to bind the Gentiles to? Is it just the moral parts? Is it the ceremonial parts too? What about the dietary and cleanliness laws? Seemingly at every turn, the Jews who converted to Christianity were having a hard time not making their cultural norms and Jewish religion a binding aspect of their new faith in Christ. But see, what's a little bit different about our passage here, as opposed to the other passages I just mentioned, is that here, Paul is not saying that you should or shouldn't eat or drink. He's not saying that you should or shouldn't celebrate certain days. He's just saying those things aren't the substance. They're not the meat. They're just shadows of the real thing. See, about once a year, uh, typically on Christmas Eve, my wife and I, we make our best meal. 
or at least it's the best meal that we know how to make. And it's, it's Jaeger schnitzel, which, mean, which means it's schnitzel with the mushroom gravy on it. It's a sweet potato casserole, and it's French fried onions uh, on top of green beans. My favorite meal of the year. And all throughout the afternoon as we cook, the smell just pervades the house. And don't get me wrong, it smells great. But once the table is set, what's greater than the smell is to actually come down and sit with the family and eat. It would be ridiculous for us to still stand in the living room because the smell is so good when the real food is waiting for us at the table. And that's what Paul is saying is going on here. He's saying these Jewish customs and traditions and laws, they're just the smell. He's saying these are just shadows, but shadows are only an outline on the ground of the true substance, the true image, the true reality. And all of these things were meant to point them to the real form of Christ. And so Paul is saying, now that Christ has come, you are not bound to just stare at the ground at the shadow. Right, listen, the Old Testament tells us that the Passover feast commemorated the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. But 1 Corinthians 5 says that it's Christ who is the true Passover lamb and the true festival of celebration. The Old Testament tells us that the law was meant to set God's people apart from the nations and make them distinct from those around them. But Galatians 3 says that that was only a guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. The Old Testament tells us that the temple and the tabernacle was where God's presence dwelt amidst his people. But John 1 says that Christ came and literally tabernacled among us. God's very imprint amidst his people. And listen, the list can just go on and on and on. But the point is this. All of these Jewish traditions and laws and practices, Jesus is the substance of which they were just the shadow. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. These aren't bad things. They just weren't ultimate things. He's saying the ultimate thing has come, so now we should embrace him. Or as B.B. Warfield put it, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. He's not just a shadow anymore. He's fully defined in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, don't just sit in the living room and smell the food cooking. Come and eat. And so now you may be saying, all right, Matt, I get it, but I'm not Jewish. Paul's missing me with this. And you may feel that way, but, but this may be hitting you a little bit more close to home than you actually think. See, in our world, it's not that uh, folks are necessarily bringing their Jewish culture into the church, but we all have a gut instinct to bring our own culture, our own traditions into the faith and make them necessary. Maybe some of us in the room come from more charismatic traditions, and so you're going to be tempted to think that if the worship service doesn't have dancing, or maybe if people don't speak in tongues, or, or don't do whatever, then they must not be saved. The Holy Spirit isn't in the midst of those people. But others, maybe some of us, we come from more reserved traditions. And the temptation is to think that to truly worship is to stand in awe, in quiet reverence to God. Because to physically or emotionally or, or, or vocally express ourselves in worship is to cross the line. 
That's not true worship of God. That's just self-serving. That's people trying to put on a show and draw attention to themselves. That's not how Christians act. See, we all have a background that we come from. And so we can relate to this tendency and impulse to import good things that we've inherited in the faith and make them necessary components for what it means to be a Christian or a church. And so this philosophy Paul is addressing seemed to have a Jewish tint to it. But it also had a good mix of pagan practices as well. And this, honestly, we, we just don't know. This may have been another group of people entirely that Paul's addressing. And so with them, Paul is, is coming against was the notion that they needed to add anything to Christ in order to inherit the abundance that he offered, right? Previously, we, we were focusing on the fact that Paul was focusing on those who overemphasized the shadows, but now he's, he's turned and focused on those that are maybe adding supplements. They're saying Christ isn't enough. You have to do these extra things as well. But one of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Right? Paul in Ephesians 2, he writes, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, let's be clear though, because I don't want this to seem like a bait and switch. There may be some new Christians in the room or maybe people that aren't Christians and we want you to feel welcome, so I want to give you everything up front. There are things that Christians must obey. And we'll get into that a little bit next week. But the Bible itself is filled with commands. God has clear expectations for how his people ought to live. But the difference is that we don't do this to earn anything. We do this in light of all that we know we've already received in Christ. But this is the point here. Our ultimate authority is God's word. Anyone that adds to or takes away from what God says in, is binding on a Christian is in error. Or as theologians of old may have put it, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. It's all here. This is why, as Christians, we need to be people of the word. It's going to be hard for you to know what the Bible binds if you don't know what the Bible says. It'll be hard for us to know the false religions of the world if we don't know the true religion of the Bible. Everything we need to live holy and God-glorifying lives is either written in here or can be logically deduced by what is written in here. It is that simple. But as many have said before, simple doesn't always mean easy. And simple obedience to God is not what Paul is coming against here. Instead, Paul is addressing people caught up in this philosophy who are trying to qualify or disqualify Christians based upon something that was supplemental to their faith in Christ. In verse 18, we read that these people were insisting on asceticism And they were insisting on the worship of angels. And they were always talking about the visions that they had. As as if these visions were required. 
But Paul is saying that that just led them to be puffed up. See, they thought they were supplementing their faith in order to make it better. But like many dietary supplements, they're pointless if you have a healthy diet. Supplements are really just unnecessary if you're eating right. And if you have the right diet of the person of Jesus, then you'll find that these supplements are useless as well. Paul puts it in verse 19 that it's nourishment coming from the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, who brings a growth that is from God. Right? And you know this. You know this from your own life. Adding things isn't always helpful. Oftentimes it just clutters. And clutter, whether it's in your life or in the living room, typically only creates more stress for you. And with Christ, adding to him only serves to take away from him. It's like adding termites to a log cabin. All you've added is something that's going to eat away, weaken, and eventually destroy what is there. Friends, what are you adding to the faith? What are you tempted to say a real Christian does? See, real Christians believe Real Christians voted for Trump because we actually love the unborn. No, no, no. Real Christians voted for Biden because we actually love and care about the oppressed and marginalized among us. No, no, no. Real Christians voted for neither because, as Spurgeon said, when given the, point, uh, the choice between two evils, choose neither. No, real Christians enjoy wine because we know that it's a good gift from God meant to be enjoyed. No, real Christians abstain completely because we know you can't carry fire that close to your chest without getting burnt. No, real Christians homeschool because it's our responsibility to raise them, not the school system. No, 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 real Christians send their kids to public school because we're called to be in the world but not of it. No, 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 real Christians send their kids to private school because we think our kids need to get a Christian education. No, real Christians adopt because we know that we've been adopted and it's the best way to show God's love to the world. No, 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 real Christians foster because we believe in the family unit and we want to see those kids reunified with their parents. The list can go on and on and on and maybe I'm alone here but I know that I am constantly tempted to add worldly values, sometimes even good values to the faith and make them necessary components for what it means to be a Christian. Maybe I'm by myself in that, but I tend to think that I'm not. And we subconsciously or consciously qualify or disqualify people on measures that we have created or as Jesus would put it, we're binding as doctrines the commandments of men. As the apostles put it, we're laying on the backs of others that which we couldn't carry ourselves. And we do all this to puff ourselves up. To pat our ego all while we think we're looking humble. But it's the same arrogance and false humility that Paul is coming against here. And friends, listen, it's when we believe ourselves to be most humble that we are at risk of being the most arrogant. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 of the two men who go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One the seemingly righteous and the other the seemingly unrighteous. And see, the, the Pharisee, he, he stands there and he parades his righteousness before God. Th thanking God for how wonderful he is. Thanking him that he didn't make him a disgusting sinner like these tax collectors. 
But Jesus tells us that the tax collector, the seemingly unrighteous one, while standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this guy gets it. He's telling us, it's not what you do for me, but what I've done for you that makes you righteous. And so Paul is saying, since this is true of you, since it's him who qualifies you, it's him who makes you righteous, since you are in him, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. Listen, because I need you to hear this. Paul is saying in our text, it doesn't matter your education level. It doesn't matter the accreditations on your degree. It doesn't matter your track record. If you've been qualified by the Son, then you cannot be disqualified by the world. And then in verse 20, Paul writes, if. All right, stop. That little word is doing a lot of work. Paul is saying, if everything we've just covered is true. See, Paul has spent his time detailing the truth and debunking the falsehoods that, uh, of, Christ, uh, of what's going on in the Colossian church. And now he's moving into the implications of that truth, the good and necessary consequences. And this section is going to take us into next week as well. So I, I'm not going to cover it all here. I promise this is not the second part of the sermon beginning. But Paul continues, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's saying, why are you permitting yourself to be put back under this bondage now that you've been liberated from it? He's saying, you know these things can't qualify you before the Father. And in verse 23, he adds, listen, they don't even have value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. They can't even stop you from sinning now. He says they only give the appearance of wisdom. And since you're, he says, sure, you're a nice whitewashed tomb, as Jesus would put it, but there's no real value there. And modern research is actually showing us these same things. In 2015, a researcher from the Institute of Family Studies uh, was writing about the scared straight programs. You know the programs. It's the one where they take at-risk youth and they take them to prison and they show them, if you continue down this road, you're going to end up like this. So don't do those things. And David Lapp, uh, the researcher, he concluded, quote, scared straight programs appear to make people more, not less, likely to use drugs and commit crimes. And he speculates that there was something about the addition of rules and the making of things off limits that actually increases their attraction. You all know that you want to touch the wall that says don't touch wet paint. But like Paul is saying here, we can put it like this. Relying on worldly interventions will not be able to stop worldly desires. You need to rely on something, or better yet, someone from out of this world to do that. See, but that's the whole point. That's what the text is driving us to see. The substance of reality cannot be grasped by pulling at shadows. And you cannot cultivate it by supplementing your faith with more rules. And it's because the substance of reality isn't a feeling. It's not a status. It's not a tradition. He is a person. And if you've got your eyes open, you will see that this person is who the whole entire story of Scripture is about. He, who's who, he is who everything is pointing to. He's the one who was promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that though they fell, there would be one to come who would be wounded but crush the head of the serpent. 
He was the person that was pointed to when Abraham and Isaac spotted the sacrificial ram caught in the thicket. He's the person who Moses wrote about in Leviticus when he wrote of the two goats, one to be sacrificed for the sins of the people and the other to be sent out to carry their sins away. He's the man Joshua met on the road who commands the Lord's army. He's the king David was told would come in his line and reign on his throne forever. He's the one the psalmist told us created everything with the strength of his pinky finger. He's the shepherd Ezekiel told us would come and gather his people. He's the one who shut the mouths of the lion in the den with Daniel. And he's the one who walked with the three Hebrew boys in the king's fiery furnace. He's the person of which John the Baptist said he wasn't even good enough to untie his sandal. He's the person who perfectly embodied and fulfilled the shadows of the feasts, the tabernacle, and the festivals. The one who washed the feet of his betrayer. The one who hung on the cross for his enemies. The one who laid dead in a grave on Saturday just to pick his life up again on Sunday. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. The one who is ascended and reigning at the right hand of God the Father right now. He is the chief cornerstone and the head of the church. This is the person who is the true substance. He is reality, and his name is Jesus. Church, behold him, the true substance. Don't settle for shadows and supplements. Don't settle for empty asceticism and false humility. Church, let's hold fast to our head the true reality that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we...